Hello, and welcome to episode number two of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Welcome back to week number two of our year-long journey of following the church calendar. My name is Joe Stout, and I will be your host. I live here in the Pacific Northwest with my lovely wife, Elizabeth, and our seven, soon-to-be-eight, children. So the second Sunday of Advent is here, and with it, there is continued eager anticipation at the coming of the Lord. So personally, this past week for my family has been a joy, uh, and we've taken each day to mark out in both small and large ways the season of Advent. Now, Advent, of course, is the beginning of the church calendar year. And after Advent will come Christmas time, the 12 days of Christmas, and then um, that will culminate with Epiphany, and then Epiphany leads us off into a whole other season. Uh, and so before I get too far down that path, that road, I'd like to mention that I understand some Christians are uncomfortable with the idea of feast days, fast days, festal and ferial times, uh, and those kinds of things. And and Paul certainly does not bind us to any of the days celebrated as a part of the church calendar. In fact, it's very important to note that all of these church calendar proper um, feasts that we are just talking about on the show, they're all totally optional. You see, we're living in the new covenant now, and the only feast day that is actually required of us is the one feast day that, that never shows up on the church calendar because it's assumed that Christians will be celebrating it. And that's the weekly Lord's Day Sabbath. This weekly period of celebration, of feasting, of rest, it's really the only true calendar we need and the only one that we're bound by God to keep. It's a weekly cycle. It's the same cycle that God instituted when he, when he created the world. He rested on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, and now we rest on the eighth day, or on the new on the new beginning of the week, on the Lord's Day, or the Day of the Lord. So, so don't worry about any of these things that I'm going to talk about as being like required or binding up a burden upon anybody. They're all optional. They're only meant to enhance our experiential love of God and our experiential um, worship of God. But do know that the weekly Lord's Day Sabbath, that is still a required festival of celebration, of feasting, and of rest, and Christians are wise to treat it with reverence and, uh, and obey it. And, you know, don't worry. Our God is so kind. He blesses us with a festival every week. Truly, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Anodomini podcast is divided into four sections. Anodomini is the 
Latin phrase for in the year of our Lord. So we look at some practical ways that we can go about celebrating the different feasts and festivals that come up as a part of the church calendar. We also look at some of the biblical reasons for doing it and the biblical connections for doing it. We also like to look at a historical section and how that historical section influenced uh, and how the history of the church has influenced how we celebrate the seasonality of the church calendar year. And then we usually finish off with a musical section. The musical section is us generally examining an ancient hymn, um, looking at the theology, oftentimes the deep, rich theology that we don't always get today. And then we finish with a musical rendition. Oftentimes it'll be original, a musical rendition of that hymn. Uh, For this week, we've got those four sections. We're going to look practically at some of the things that uh, in my own family we've been doing in terms of celebrating Advent. Biblically, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11 and dig into that. We also have the historical um, usage of the lectionary that we're going to talk about. Uh, And then finally, we're going to uh, unpack one of the oldest, most ancient Christmas carols ever written. Uh, So let's start with the practical, and it'll give us a good opportunity um, for the beginning of the show uh, for me to give a report on how things went since the last celebratory day. In this particular season right now, we're talking about podcasts every week because there's the first Sunday of Advent, and then the second Sunday of Advent, and then third, and the fourth, and then there's going to be Christmas. Then there'll be a little bit of a break because between Christmas and Epiphany, there's going to be a break. There's actually where the 12 days of Christmas come in. Um, I won't be doing a podcast on any of the 12 days of Christmas, but we will do one on Epiphany, which is the, the manifestation of the Lord uh, to the Magi and, and uh, kind of goes into the period of the church calendar where, where Jesus is showing himself to the world. Uh, but let's talk about how uh, it went this last week. Um, well, first of all, it was awesome. I love Advent, and part of the reason why I love Advent probably has to do with the fact that it's at the beginning, and just like everybody's kind of gung-ho about, you know, maybe it's going to the gym at the beginning of the new year, or maybe it's, uh, you know, it's spring it's spring training for baseball, and you're super into baseball or something like that. But I love Advent um, because it gives Elizabeth and I um, the freedom to make basically everything a celebration. Uh, so generally, we try and give actual presents on each Sunday of Advent. Um, they're usually not huge gifts, uh, and this last week was certainly no exception. So um, I'll just share with you what, what we did practically to give our kids uh, some, some Advent joy. Um, our kids, there's seven of them, um, six of them are walking and talking, and, um, and our kids have been totally into drinking tea, mostly the older ones, but even the three-year-old wants to have tea. He doesn't actually want to drink the tea, (laughs) but he doesn't want to be left out. See, kids know inclusion versus exclusion very, very well. He wants to be included no matter what. And so uh, they've just been totally into drinking tea. So this past week, Elizabeth went to the Goodwill, and she found uh, six Christmas-themed coffee mugs. Actually, she found found five, uh, and we had to supplement one of the mugs with uh, my mother. Thank you, Mom, for for giving us the the extra mug. But she found basically six Christmas-themed coffee mugs. And then she went, then we basically filled them with bags of tea and and instant coffee, too. The coffee is for my oldest son, Charles. Uh, He prefers coffee to tea, actually. Uh, then we wrapped up the the the, the goodie filled mugs and uh, you know put nice tags on them and whatnot. We gave them to the kids, kind of at the beginning of our Advent liturgy, 
Uh, and that way they could actually, because we knew exactly the first thing, as soon as they saw him, they was like, can we have tea? So that way we gave it to them at the beginning so they could actually have tea while we celebrated together. Uh, and then during, so that's kind of like what we tried to do on the actual Lord's Day, on the actual uh, Sunday of Advent, so the first Sunday of Advent. Um, this, this coming week, we'll have the second Sunday of Advent, and, and I'll report back uh, next week what, what, we're, what, we're, what we're doing. Um, so during the week, so we focus our kids, uh, the attention, more on experiences together um, as times of celebration. So on Monday, for example, uh, there was a free orchestra concert uh, that actually my mother-in-law took the kids to, Elizabeth's mom did, uh, and the kids just had a blast with that. And of course, that, that was an Advent celebration. We told the kids we're doing this because it's Advent. Uh, and on Tuesday, we all went out to pizza. Uh, everybody, everybody came, and so that was another Advent celebration. And Wednesday, uh, we actually had some dear friends from Spokane send us an incredibly generous uh, radio dramas in the mail. Uh, and so we passed those on to our children, uh, uh, and, and that was another Advent celebration. Uh, just today, uh, this is how simple some of these things can be. Just today, Elizabeth came home from a doctor's appointment, and she brought each of the kids a uh, 33-cent ruler from the dollar store, three, three for a dollar uh, pack. So it doesn't have to be complicated, uh, and it doesn't have to be at all like a financial burden or a you know, that whole consumerism thing that a lot of times Christians are worried about or the materialism thing. That's, that's not it at all. It, it, it's really just about managing the expectations in your children. Um, and it's basically teaching them how to be excited and thankful, even when it's a 33 cent ruler <laughs> and, uh, you know, managing those expectations and teaching them to be thankful in, in all circumstances is one of the, the keys to a happy home. So let's move from the practical application of celebrating Advent into the biblical passage section. Uh, this week's biblical text, as it relates to the second Sunday of Advent, comes from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. I'll go ahead and read them now. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or, dis or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, a prophecy is foretold about the coming of life from the stump of Jesse. Even though this is only a stump, presumably dead from constant unbelief, there is new life in it 
there will be a branch, a root of Jesse that will come. And when he comes, he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and a fear of the Lord. In fact, we are told that his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So we're talking about somebody, someone who is going to become from this stump of Jesse, this, this tree that has been cut down. From that tree that's been cut down in judgment will come a shoot of Jesse. He will come in judgment, but he won't come in man's judgment. See, man must necessarily judge by what he sees and what he hears. Man does not have the ability to see the heart as God does. But this branch, this branch from the dead stump of Jesse, won't judge like we do. He will judge with righteousness and equity, and he will be a friend to the poor and the meek. Now let's stop here and talk about judgment. Often we hear the word judgment, and our minds picture a crazy-eyed man in a sandwich board that reads, Judgment is coming in drippy black letters. In other words, we think of judgment as scary-sounding. It sounds terrifying. It sounds terrifying for everybody. And it is true that for the wicked, judgment is scary. It's an it's a awful thing. Isaiah promises that this root of Jesse will strike the earth with his mouth and will kill the wicked with his breath of his lips. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I don't want to in any way lessen the severity of that. But for God's people, for those of us who claim Christ as their king, judgment is the exact opposite. Righteous judgment is something that we yearn for and we long to see fulfilled. But why? Why do we want judgment? Well, let's look at the passage. Look what happens after the king comes and judges righteously. We see this. It says, you know, wild and dangerous animals become tame. Frail children can lead the strongest of beasts. Venomous snakes lose their bite of death. Bears, lions, leopards, and carnivorous predators, they cease their endless killing and they return to life as it once was in the garden. It was a life free from death altogether. In fact, we are promised that as this glorious truth grows, as yeast might mysteriously expand through a loaf of bread, as Jesus once said, we are promised that one day the, quote, that the earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Wow. It also promises that the root of Jesse, Jesus, shall stand as a signal for the peoples, that all the nations will inquire about him, and that in him they will find their rest. Now, that day has not yet arrived in all of its fullness and glory, but I am here to tell you that the reality and means of fulfillment of that future has, in fact, come. I think we miss the point altogether if we don't see that the fulfillment of this prophecy began when Jesus came to us in Bethlehem. Matthew 4.16 reads this way. It says, quote, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So think about this. We were those people dwelling in darkness and the shadow of death, and then Jesus came, and now a light has dawned. Think 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, 
we were sitting in darkness, and now Jesus has come and the light has dawned. Are we going to ignore that glorious truth the next time we hear about some natural disaster, some war, or other physical manifestation of sin? Are we going to miss the fact that Christ has already come and has set and is setting things right? (laughs) That right now he is reigning until all of his enemies have been set under his feet? And then when only one enemy remains, that of death itself, he will return and crush the final enemy and death itself will be swallowed up in victory? We can't miss that. That is the truth of the gospel. And when Jesus came, That was the beginning of that prophecy that we just read in Isaiah 10, being fulfilled. Although it has not yet reached its fullness, we can't miss the fact that when Jesus came, he came to put everything right. That was the first time. We don't need to sit and wait for him to come again to make everything right as the way he did the first time he came. Eventually, he will come again. And when he does come again, it will be to put the final enemy to death, which is death itself. And death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And that is the glorious truth of the gospel. Now for some historical context. How does Isaiah 5 from last week, and now Isaiah 10 this week, how does that fit in with the nativity, with the coming of Christmas? How does that have anything to do with Christmas or Advent? Or is there any connection Or is Joe just grabbing biblical texts at random? Well, the readings are not at all random, and I hinted at this at the beginning of the show, but they are in fact highly, they're highly relevant to the coming or the advent of Christ. We discussed this a little bit last week, but the coming of Christ doesn't just mean the coming of the Christ child, although it certainly does. It means all sorts of comings. He comes in judgment. He comes to... Um, Jerusalem in victory. He, of course, comes as a, uh, as a human baby. So these readings come from something called a lectionary. Now for some historical context. How does Isaiah 5 from last week, and now Isaiah 11 from this week, how does that fit in with the nativity or with the coming of Christmas? It, does it fit in with the Christmas season at all? Is there any connection or is Joe just grabbing biblical texts at random? So the readings are definitely not random, and in fact, they're highly relevant to the coming of Christ. These readings come from something called a lectionary. And a lectionary is simply a prepared set of readings that are connected in some sort of germane way to the day or the week of the church calendar. So the lectionary and the church calendar pretty much go hand in hand. Most lectionaries have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel passage, and then an epistle reading. So we have something from the Old Testament, we have a psalm, we have something from the life of Jesus, maybe it's a teaching or a, a miracle, and then we have one of Paul's letters or one of the one of the epistles, could be from Peter or from James. And these passages usually share commonalities with one another, although sometimes you have to work to spot them. So one of the passages for the second Sunday of Advent was Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. That's what we just read. But I didn't get a chance to read or talk about Psalm 72, or Romans 15, or Matthew 3. All passages that are obviously, or maybe not so obviously, connected by the common theme surrounding the good news, or the gospel, of the coming judgment of Christ. Remember I said, 
For those who claim Christ as king, the coming judgment of Christ is a very good thing. So I'm going to have a link to the lectionary I will be pulling from uh, in the show notes. I'll put that up in the show notes. Um, And it's hard to find a lot of concrete information on the history of this particular lectionary. But the very biblical, uh, biblically faithful Missouri Synod branch of the Lutheran Church, uh, that's where I'm pulling this one from, uh, I'm not Lutheran personally, but, um, but the Missouri Synod branch of the Lutheran Church is, is very biblically um, uh, faithful. Uh, they're, very, they're not theologically liberal. They are very safe. They're, they're, they're a very safe and Christ-honoring denomination. Um, so what their website was telling me was that this particular lectionary has been, uh, has been in use or has been based on lectionaries that have been in use since the 4th century. So think about that. For at least 1,600 years, Christians have been reading these passages, uh, I'm sure with plenty of variations, but they've been reading these passages during the different seasons of the church calendar, kind of in unison. And it's pretty cool to think about that. Now, that means, of course, that we have centuries of thought and theology and purpose behind these biblical pairings. And when you think about the Bible, and you think about how big and how how complicated and how widespread and and yes it's telling one main story but it is a deeply deeply um in you know involved book it is a big deal there's a lot to take in when you think about the fact that we have to take as as individuals we're protestants you know we believe that the bible belongs in the hand of men and women and boys and girls when you think about us having to take in that entire book and figuring out the appropriate passages to read and when to read them and all that, that's a big deal. The Bible is just far too perfect for us to, to be able to handle um, each man and each woman um, to handle uh, carefully. So we go to lectionaries where a lot of this thought, like I said before, this theology and thought and purpose have gone into it. In fact, for centuries, um, uh, this thought and, and theology and purpose have gone into it. And so um, it's, it really ought to be a blessing to us. Uh, and it reminds us that we're not alone in all of this. Uh, as we go through these seasons of life, we have a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, and they've paved the way in many areas, and how to structure our Bible reading being just one of them. Uh, so check out the link to the lectionary. It's, it's a three-year lectionary, which means that yeah, there's year A, year B, and year C. So this series of readings that we're reading uh, over the course of um, the following uh, podcast and all of the church calendar readings that we'll be pulling from, we won't see those again for another, you know, another four years, basically. So I recommend you, you check out the link, you go, you download the, the series of readings. It's about a four-page PDF document. It's very easy to follow. And then, you know, going back to the practical application, you know, take those four biblical texts and read through them and, and meditate, on, meditate on them during the week, during the second week of Advent. Um, and think about how they connect and how they connect up with the, the coming of Jesus. And with that, we're going to move into the last part of the show. Uh, and this is the part of the show, the musical part, where we take an ancient hymn and we probe the incredible uh, theological depths of our forefathers in the faith. It's Sometimes I'm just absolutely astounded when you, uh, when you consider the immensity of the information that is available to us in an instant. I'm, I'm just astounded by how unbelievably shallow we can be. And so this week's hymn comes to us again, just like last week's did. It comes to us from the fourth century. 
This time the poet's name is a very Greek-sounding uh, Aurelius Clemens Prudentius. And he wrote a poem which was translated into the hymn that we call um, Of the Father's Love Begotten. The poem was translated in 1851, and it was set to the plain chant tune known as the, uh, pardon the pronunciation here, the Divinum or the Divinum Mysterium. I've changed the tune entirely for the first five verses of the version I will be sharing with you today. But listen to the sixth and the seventh stanzas of the hymn, and that theme, that plain chant theme, will come back. I now want to read through the words of the hymn, and then we'll do some brief commentary on those words, and then we'll listen to the song. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. At his word, the worlds were framed. He commanded it was done. Heaven and earth and depths of ocean, in their threefold order one. All that grows beneath the shining of the moon and burning sun, evermore and evermore. He is found in human fashion, death and sorrow here to know that the race of Adam's children, doomed by law to endless woe, may not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below, evermore and evermore. O oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's Redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, evermore and evermore. This is he whom seers in old time chanted of with one accord, whom the voices of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now he shines the long expected. Let creation praise its Lord evermore and evermore. O ye heights of heaven adore him, angel hosts his praises sing. Powers, dominions bow before him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent, every voice in concert sing, evermore and evermore. Christ to thee with God the Father, and O Holy Ghost to thee, him enchant with high thanksgiving, and unwearied praises be. Honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory, evermore and evermore. Amen. Oh man, oh, that is just so awesome. Verse 1 starts by describing Christ uh, as being before the world began. He has, no, he has no beginning. He has no end. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the source from whom all life flows and is the fulfillment for all things that are, that have been, and that will come evermore. That's just verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. Verse 2 vividly narrates the beginning of the world. God created from the power of his voice. He created with nothing else but a command, and it was done. Heaven, earth, and the ocean, a trinity of sorts of creation, they were put in order by his voice. Everything that grows under the sun and moon was created by him. Then verse 3 Verse 3 gives an account of the historical Jesus, the Christ in human form, or in this case, or fashion. He knew both death and sorrow while he lived with us, but did so. 
He did for a very reason, because this race of Adam's children was doomed by the law to death, and that he would not allow that to happen. For his chosen people, he would not allow them to perish in the gulf between God and man. Then verse 4, verse 4 proclaims the glories of the blessed birth from the virgin who was God's receiver of grace. The Holy Ghost conceived in her the Savior of the human race. Now, do we believe that means that every single person will be saved? No, of course not. Because for the wicked, we already know that judgment is coming. But it does mean that God loved the whole world, that he was going to redeem everything in it, including the creation, the animals, the people. He wants to save the world, and that is why his son came. And every man, woman, boy, girl, little baby in the womb, every one of those who was promised to Jesus Christ, he will save them all. Man, that's amazing. So verse 4 shows that the Holy Ghost conceived in Mary, the Savior of the human race, and when that babe, that Christ child, first revealed his sacred face to the world, the world was never again the same forevermore. Verse 5 then describes both the prophecies regarding the Christ by the Old Testament prophets. They, in, the, in the poetry of the song, they call them, them seers of old time. They chanted and they repeated in agreement the coming of the Messiah. And now this Christ has ascended unto the Father and is reigning in glory. So let creation praise its Lord. Verse 6 which is back, if you notice, when you listen to the song, verse 6 will be back in the original plain chant. Verse 6 expresses the truth of Romans 1, which is that all creation adores Christ. The truth of Hebrews, that Christ is superior to the angels. The truth of Philippians 2.10, that all will bow before him, including the powers and the dominions of today. These all will bow before him and extol him as God and King. This verse concludes that no tongue should be silent, but that everyone should in concert or together, we should all sing unto him. And then finally, verse 7 finishes the hymn by giving glory to the triune nature of God. We saw this last week. A lot of these old hymns, they end or they incorporate the Trinity throughout the song. Christ to thee with God the Father and O Holy Ghost to thee, it says. What should our response be to this triune God? That's a good question. Well, what does the song say? It says, hymn and chant with high thanksgiving. The true mark of a Christian is thanksgiving. Don't grow weary in praising him because honor, glory, and dominion and eternal victory belong to Jesus Christ forevermore and evermore. Amen. And with that, I will finish this podcast by playing a brand new version of the ancient hymn, of the Father's Love Begotten. This is going to be track two on the upcoming album simply called Advent, which I had actually hoped would be released this week, but it's looking like it will have to be next week. So stay tuned. I will keep you all updated on that. I hope everyone has a blessed second Sunday of Advent, and I will see you all next week. Of the Father's Love Begotten Ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He. 
of the things that are and that have been and that future years shall see evermore evermore mm -hmm. at his word the worlds were framed he commanded it was done heaven and earth and depths of ocean in their threefold order one all that grows beneath the shining of the moon and burning sun evermore evermore mm -hmm. he is found in human fashion death and sorrow here to know that the Christ to thee with God the Father, 
and O Holy Ghost to Thee. Him enchant with high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be. Honor, glory, and 